so where are we going with this, Darren? We did this too early in the morning. Hundred and eleven or something. Ah, oh, the forty-four hundred. No. Oh, the four hundred and eleven. Yeah, missing four one one. Missing four one one. There's a lot of different numbers of missings. Well, since many miss- popular pop culture references. Yeah, the missing four one one is a thing. I don't want to go into it though. Okay. Well, I'm the four hundred and twelfth. Mm-hmm. Does that make me better or worse? Uh, is it good to be missing? <laughs> Not in the missing 411. I thought about the missing 412. Okay, good. Great. Right. Um, yeah, what yeah. are we doing? What are we doing? Uh, uh, I never did open the agenda. So, yeah. okay. Way spring break was great, wasn't it? Back after spring break. Yeah. We went to lots of parties. <laughs> uh, met up yeah. in Florida. Oh, it was great. It was... Uh, it's been a while. Um, yeah, life-changing experiences, a few montages. Yeah. Really grew as a person. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been a slight delay since the recording of the uh, previous episode. Um, of course, no, that's now online, isn't it? Well, that'll be out by the time uh, people are listening to this one. So, um, so we've been up to loads of stuff. And uh, uh, we should say why there's been a bit of a delay. Go on then. Well, I had some work on which made it more difficult. And you've been having an extension built, which is really loud. It means you can't record podcasts at your house. Exactly. And so, but in the future, this might mean that you can record on a regular schedule. Exactly. I'll have Tetsu, there's a Tetsu annex on our house. (laughs) What people don't realize is Darren doesn't have a, um, what, uh, an office. Dedicated workspace. workspace. You've been working in the kitchen, right? Or the dining room, dining room table. Yeah, dining room. Yeah, which is regularly interrupted by everyone in the house, as it would be. So, yes. So finally, a Tetsu annex. Yeah. Yeah. So all my books, currently piles and piles of them in bedrooms and... uh, Yeah? Yeah, yeah. And all over the place, just the places are... God, it's terrible. Okay, right. uh, Enough preamble. Now, okay. for the part of the show we like to call Preamble. Um, <laughs> <laughs> News uh, from the world of Preamble. Yeah, well, F you to start with. Um, just oh, really, really okay. quick. I'm not going to discuss these at length. Okay, um, the thing I, where I said it was James Cameron who did Gladiator. No, Ridley Scott. That new monkey, uh, John Aspinalli, from a uh, couple of episodes back. Well, there's been this is you know the one where there was this controversy as to what kind of whether it's a new species of monkey or not, whether it's been dyed. Um, oh, there's been yeah. extensive follow up on that, tons of follow up. So, so much I am not going to discuss it. Uh, all I'll say briefly is that the claimed generic allocation of the animal to um, Presbytis has been challenged. Some people have said it's more likely to be a Trachypithecus, and the argument as to whether it's a valid thing or not is there's there's good arguments from both sides, and I can't really say which is winning. Uh, there's there's some follow up also on thing we've covered <laughs> several times on the podcast on uh, whether cats infect people with toxoplasmosis and whether that modifies human behaviour. There was a paper that came out. Um, 
like about two months ago about this. I believe it's in uh, one of the PLOS journals. And the argument there was that no, cats do not modify human behavior through the infection of toxoplasmosis. So um, if anyone's interested, I'm just throwing these ideas out there. If you want to check it out, go and check it out yourself. We're not going to talk about it here because many minutes would have to be devoted to it. The drinking game is in effect. Really? That hasn't mm-hmm. been in effect for ages. Uh, Two-minute rule? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, right, that's my FU. Do you have any FU? Uh, no, I can't right. remember more than a month back. I can't actually, okay. let's be honest, I can't remember more than a couple of days back. Oh, so or true. indeed, anything at all. So, no, I don't have any FU. Um, news from the world of Darren and John? No, you're not looking at the agenda. The world Now it's called News from the World of News. Hang on, we have an agenda? Yep, I'm looking at it right now. News from the World of News, and this one is specially tailored for you, John, because News from the World of News lists, first of all, Batman versus Superman, right? Yeah. <laughs> got to talk about that a great legs. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. We totally don't. Uh, not sure how I feel about that film. Uh, Civil War. Captain America Civil War is oh just out. God. Got to talk about that at great length. Really? Probably the, be- we, the best Marvel movie. Can we never talk about superhero <laughs> films? Uh, Deadpool. Let's talk about Deadpool at great length. Oh. <laughs> oh, I was so good. Uh, the Ferris Bueller bit at the end. I, think, I hope everyone watched that and understood it. Uh, X-Files. X-Files. Yes. I wanted to talk about X-Files when it first appeared. But mm. of course, now, <laughs> now it's a distant memory. and No one will even remember that it's on. But... um. Oh, yeah, I watched nearly, nearly the whole series. Not the whole series, but most of it. And I, I don't really... know. Yeah, sorry. It it more recently came to Netflix, so you might have a second wave. So Okay. Yeah. All right. But I liked the new X-Files. I thought I, I expected to hate it, and I really didn't. And the oh. reason I really liked it is because they did so much stuff that was exactly the same as it was the first time around. And not like, I don't know how many seasons the X-Files had. I don't mean the stuff towards the end that didn't even have Dukovny in, in it. Yeah. But I mean stuff right at the start. I mean, the fact that the credits were exactly the same, the kind of the feel of it, the sort of, yeah, I just, I just, I, I, I did like it. Uh, yeah. Some of the storyline, hmm. the, the whole UFO conspiracy stuff, I, I, think I quite like that. Yeah. You like that? Yeah. I'm not I, saying I like it as in like I approve of it and think it's real. I like the sci-fi storylines that are based on Roswell and crash, crash saucers and alien abductions and stuff. I think that's great fiction. I hate all that stuff in the X-Files. Oh. I love that subject, but I hate the way the X-Files does it. Oh, I think they do pretty well. I think it's so stupid. Well, there you go. Different <laughs> opinion. <laughs> there was one episode in there that I really, really liked, and you could probably have a guess which one it is. I th- well, I know it was one I didn't see. Oh, you was- didn't see that one? Yeah, was it the monster one? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't see it. Oh. Was it a swamp monster or something? Oh, you have to watch that, Derek, because we have to talk about that on Tattoo. It's hilarious. Okay. Yeah. Let's write that down. (laughs) I can't believe you missed the one episode that's super relevant. Okay. Well, busy, busy, busy. I'm not sat there in front of a TV all the time. Oh, but you watched all these stupid (laughs) UFO... Yes, you are, too. And you watched all these stupid UFO episodes. Right. Moving on. And you've got time to watch the dumbest films in the world six or seven (laughs) times. (laughs) Um, Yeah. What's the, what's the newest film I saw? Saw something in the cinema recently. I haven't seen Civil War yet. Oh, Cloverfield Lane. Yeah. Ten Cloverfield Lane. Yeah. Yeah. Saw that at the cinema. 
Yeah. Nothing to do with the monster, does it? <laughs> Nothing at all to do with Cloverfield. The only connection is that the term Cloverfield is in there. Nothing at all like it. And I really liked it. I thought it was a good film, but slightly disappointed with the way it panned out. And I, I don't want to say any more because spoilers at this stage, I guess. All right. Um, moving on. Yeah. Uh, news from... It's, I've written Tetsu News. What do we normally call it? News so, from the world of news. We've just done that. <laughs> that was news from the world of Darren, then? Popular tat. News from the world of Darren and John? I don't know. Whatever. Okay. I've written down Tetsu News because, first of all, reminder, TetsuCon still happening this year. Yep. The 1st of October, 2016, the London Wetland Centre. We now have a full list of uh, speakers. Um... And um, a diverse array of stuff on fossil animals and uh, ecology, conservation, biology, and uh, animals in art, and a number of people with stalls and things. Yep. Remind me, need, need to talk to you about that. Need to talk to me about stalls and write that down. Yeah. Also, I think we'll have the tickets up by the time you listen to this episode. So, that'll oh, be will it. we? Yep, yeah. I think so. That'll be tetzu.com forward slash convention. Okay, now. Uh, moving on to stuff that's actually been on the blog, Tetrapod Zoology, currently hosted at Scientific American. Um, I've written recently about the plight of the Junin grebe, which is this South American plightless grebe that really needs... Uh, we lost three grebe species went extinct in the 20th and early 21st centuries. Three species. That's pretty poor. Out of a group of birds, it's only like 20 species. <laughs> that's rubbish. <laughs> so, so it's like we're, humans are determined to kill these birds off. Um, hang on, hang on, hang on, Darren. Three out of 20. Yeah. Don't you think most clades, if you pick them, will have lost three out of 20 species? What, within 100 years? Well, the last 100 years has been pretty rough, hasn't it? For groups of animals, okay, if you think of, all, think of a famous group of animals, think of a recently extinct animal that's been made extinct by people. You know, like your thylacines, quokkas, all those sorts of things. Well, but there are like hundreds of frogs, aren't there? Yeah, out of out, how many frogs are there in total? I'll know, tell you, there's about 4,000 4,000 and something. I th- my, my skills at maths tell me the odds are... <laughs> <laughs> tell us you have no idea where the grebes are doing. For a group of birds, there's like 20 worse. species. You maybe... I don't know. Well, you're, you're, you're saying that the odds are pretty much the same as they are for big parrots and passerines and whatever. I don't know. Maybe. Indeed. I don't know. I just, I don't know. It doesn't strike me as particularly high. For a group of birds, twenty-two-ish species, and we've and we've lost three of them since. Well, actually, it's not not hundred years. It's since nineteen um, seventy-ish. So I don't know. I don't know. It seems high, but whatever. The Junian grebe. Okay, and I've written about this on Tetchbot Zoology. And if you are inclined to help, please do follow the link to the uh, the the what do you call it when you try and get money to pe- crowdsourced, crowdfunded, crowdfunding crowdfunding there's a crowdfunding conservation project and they're trying to raise i think it's like three thousand dollars it's not much at all uh and you know so please help if you can only like a dollar will make a difference um permian bears which is a, a, a tetsu in joke to those who've been a long-term reader that was covered uh funnily enough published on april 1st which is purely coincidental now what would you say would be the most significant discovery in the world of zoology right now, here in the 21st century. Oh, don't, don't get my hopes up about a new tape here. Well, <laughs> well, 
okay. that may or may not even be a new tapir. Conventionally, there are thought to be four extant tapir species, wow. but surprisingly, Mario Coswell and colleagues have recently... There's a new paper that has just been published on alleged Taparus cabamani, which uh, is now one of about four papers that says that um, probably isn't worthy of... Well, this all de- of course, this is all messy because it depends on what you want to call a species. But this latest study, I don't have it in front of me, I can't remember the names of the authors, but they say that Cabamani is like a subpopulation of terrestris. But they do find, if I remember correctly, they do find the um, animals that have Cabamani uh, paplotypes or whatever, genetic markers, to be a clade. So they have identified... They do. They have identified a lineage within the thing called terrestrius, and then then that comes back to this issue of what do you want to call a species or not? Because there are lots of other things that we call species that are nested within other things that we call species. So I don't think people are saying, "Oh, this shows it's not a species because it's a subset within terrestrius." But it's like, well, yeah, that may be true, and I'm not saying that 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 you can still regard that as support for the idea that Cabamani is distinct enough to be a species, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily not a species. Um, yeah, I mean, all species in in the long run have to be nested in, every, in all other species, right? all the way back to the first thing. So species have to be nested in other species. I guess the other problem, if it's not reproduc- reproductively isolated for a mammal species that you know, sexually reproducing species, that does seem like a knock against it. Well, no, it doesn't, because there are lots of other things that are regarded unanimously as good species, and yet they hybridise all over the place at the edges of their ranges and stuff, so... um, Yeah, which is why species is not... Yeah, are wolves and coyotes and domestic dogs the same thing then? Because they all hybridise all over the place in the wild, creating this hybrid swarm, and there are... I would say yes, kind of. Otherwise, what are we talking about? You would say, what, yes, they are the same species. Yeah. Air quotes, species. Yeah. Well, okay, that's your opinion, but the consensus majority opinion is that they are but that's just legally... A, yeah, but, yeah, but there has to be like some sort of legal... It's just a circular def- argument, isn't it? If no, one's using def- if no one's using a definition, then they're just like... Don't really care what they say. If they give me a definition... No, seriously, if they give me a definition and say, by this definition they are, I'd say, okay, then, fine. By that definition... But if everyone's using thousands of different definitions, and a lot of it just seems to be historical, sort of, well, we've always considered these things separate, yep. so we're going to continue to, then, yep. uh, you know, well, yeah, cool opinion, cool opinion, but, you know, whatever. It's the discussion that just won't die. Yeah, and, exactly. And, and, I guess and, the thing about these new species, like the new tapir and stuff, is that people get excited talking about them like they're... I, um, Something we've discovered something no one's seen before, right? Yeah. <laughs> Whereas actually, what we're getting into is low-level taxonomic wrangling, which is possibly one of the least exciting things to an outsider, <laughs> rather than the most exciting thing, which is a brand new uh, living species, as in the way most people think of it. As in, oh, you found something no one's ever seen before. Looks completely yeah. different. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we've covered this so many times before, and I'm certainly sympathetic to, to what you've just said. And certainly as a paleontologist, I take the historical you know, approach to the entities we call species. But on the other hand, I do think that you have to have some kind of, um, some kind of like legal like consensus benchmark, which varies from one group of organisms to the next. But we have to have some kind of like 
we okay no matter what the uh the the nitty-gritty of the genetics the population level genetics is we have to agree that those things that we call wolves are somehow classified as separate from the things we call coyotes because there is a difference in terms of like um you know mean morphology kind of like you know an average morphology and an average ecology we have to agree there are there are those things otherwise uh, i this is the difference between making sense of things in terms of like you know purely from a biological sort of conservation oriented perspective versus a practical kind of like you know legal based definition which which has to exist it has to exist yeah uh, well well does it but of course it does. I'm not sure about it that. It's one way. Of, it it's one way of doing it. I don't think it's the only way of doing it. Um, but it has to exist. That you have to have that president, because otherwise, you're going to have a, a, like there's okay wolves. You think of wolves and coyotes. Okay, maybe complicated example, but there's a thing you call a wolf that has a certain you know ecological role, which is not replicated by the things we call coyotes. And one of those things. And what are the do hybrids you, doing? Bit of everything all over the place. Exactly. <laughs> Whatever they want. <laughs> it's a hybrid swarm. And there's Okay, because by this definition, human are several, humans are several different species. Well. <laughs> okay, obviously not reproductively isolated, but my God, do some people have e- fulfill completely different ecological niches to others? Let's not let's not go there. Exactly, that's the point. <laughs> no one has comfortable saying that. Humans are such a mess because there's just I mean, there's just every possible intermediate between everything. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. Well there we go. That's that one's solved, wrapped up tightly. Um and yeah. Uh, oh and okay, news from the world of Tetsui stuff. Uh Darren is still working on the big book, the Actinopterygian Fish Japser. Currently 170 pages long without figures. And basically all I do at the moment is fish. Um, okay, and that'll do. Should we mention uh, what's happening with Cryptozoologicon 2? Because there's been a bit of news on that recently. Yeah, go on. It's not going to be good news, people. Uh, <laughs> well, we discovered it was a... It fell a little short, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we th- we do, we've been going around thinking it was, what, you know, 95% done? Then we actually did a page count, and it turns out it's more like 70% done. So, hmm. Slacker artists. Yeah. Well, we just didn't have enough things in there. We thought we did, but we didn't. You know, counting, not our strong suit, I guess. I really thought, I, I can't remember why, but I thought the last time we totted up the number of uh, animals covered in the book, that, that it was it was done. But yeah, we discovered that it wasn't done, so... um. Yeah. Okay, so so Cryptozoologicon Volume 2 coming real soon. <laughs> but there are so many other things in the way. I mean, all mostly all I'm working on is the textbook, uh, which uh, is going to be pretty substantial when it's done. Those of you who follow me on social media will know about how many fish I've drawn and stuff lately. Uh, and I'll, I'll mention my Patreon here, which is uh, at... Uh, um, Patreon. dot com forward slash Tetzoo. Thank you to the people who support me. As for the rest of you, um, but yeah, other stuff just gets in the way. Okay, so okay. What are, yeah, the big topic then, right? What is? We're going to move on to the big topic. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fish, fish is a big fish. Fish is a stupid topic, Darren. We won't talk you about fish. You would not fish. believe how many there are. God. 
And bear in mind, I am just doing the ones represented in the fossil record. Okay, right, sorry. I guess the thing is I assume there are infinite fish. Well, there's not. There's far from it. But in terms of... I I think you're wrong, Darren. I think there just are infinite fish. You think there is, like, but then... Yeah, you're gonna open. Are you gonna open up this little clade and find there's like six million of them? Well, that's that seems to be the case, I, and it's never ending. And then you like, find a little subclade in that, and you open that up, and you realise there's six thousand of them as well. That's pretty much the case. It's like for, I will say that for every one of the groups, many of which I you know, had no experience with before, now I consider you know, I'm quite an expert on on fish and their evolutionary history. But um, so for every one of the groups. The the amount you have to say have to say about them is equivalent to like how much there is to say about say dinosaurs <laughs> or mammals. <laughs> oh my god, osteoglossomops alone. Oh my god, carps, just carp, just uh, no. Is carps or carp? I've had this discussion about with the plurals. Sorry, okay, yeah. Shut We're up, not Darren. allowed to talk about fish. Shut up, Darren, about fish. Yeah, the the, the transition has. It's happened, not the though. lesser vertebrates podcast. No, I have uh, fish are now part of the of my remit. I, I I never thought I'd say that, but it's the it's now the case. You're making mockery of your your brand. I am, I am. What's, what 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 have I become? What will you become? That's another thing we haven't discussed. Rogue One, a Star Wars movie. Oh, it's, oh my Do god! Do we have to talk about what trailers? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do we? Okay. Have? No. Shut up! Shut up! Okay. Wait. All right. Let's let's get on. Right. What are we Sorry. talking about? Okay, so uh, this year uh, I have published a book. I have another book coming out later in the year about dinosaurs, but I have a book out called Hunting Monsters, Cryptozoology and the Reality Behind the Myths. And it's so far only available as an ebook published by Arcturus, as in bears. Um, and um, you can find it at your normal digital retailers, uh, like I normally. I don't know how I feel about plugging Amazon, but I normally just point people to Amazon. Or you can get it directly from Arcturus themselves. Hunting Monsters by me, that's Darren Nash. And, um, yeah, I think we should talk about this book. And because a lot of the material follows on from stuff we've discussed uh, here on the podcast, uh, it's kind of a logical continuation of ideas discussed here and on Tetrapod's Orgy, the blog. Um, yeah, so... Let's let's talk about that a bit and, and encourage people to buy it. As an ebook, it's crazy cheap. It's like uh, I don't know, two pounds thirty nine. If you're here in the UK, it is indeed. So I think that's three dot three dollars or something. Three fifty. Yeah. yeah. I I did a an interview uh, for the brilliant Monster Talk podcast on the book as well. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, three pa- three dollars forty two for the Kindle. But remember, you don't have to have a Kindle. To uh, to use Kindle Reader, you can use it on any device. Yeah. So seven chapters make up Hunting Monsters. An introduction, what is cryptozoology? Monsters of the Deep, which is obviously sea monsters. Creatures of Loch and Lake, Loch Ness and Lake Champlain, Okanagan and so on. Bigfoot, Yeti and other crypto hominids. Uh, Makila, Mbembe, Ropen and other air quotes, prehistoric survivors. Mystery marsupials and other oddities and the changing face of cryptozoology. So this gave me a good excuse to crystallize various ideas that I've had. Um, and it won't be a surprise to uh, regular listeners of the podcast or regular readers of Tetsu to know that, well, we mentioned transitions earlier what with the fish thing. But, um, yeah, I've pretty much made the full transition over the course of my interest in cryptozoology 
to someone who um, I certainly regard myself as an honest skeptic. I'm not prepared to say that 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 we can be 100 percent certain that say Bigfoot and the Loch Ness monster don't exist, but uh, I do think that that what we've learned indicates that it's these are kind of social phenomena and that um, people have got these ideas in their minds and they encounter phenomena or observe phenomena and they then interpret them as encounters with mystery creatures, which um, I think there's a lot of support for this view. And then there's still, and that's not to say that that's not to say that we can explain everything that's ever happened. And it's not to say that people don't see things that they interpret as monsters, but it does mean that the idea that there are flesh and blood giant undiscovered animals at the bottom of the reports, that is not the hypothesis one. That is not the primary hypothesis we should latch on to. Indeed. It gave me a good excuse to um, to, to really put that. I mean, I've, I've had lots of ideas about how we might interpret, say, for example, various Loch Ness monster photographs and various Bigfoot sightings and stuff. But this gave me a good excuse to finally... I'm always constrained by word count. You can never say everything you want to. But, um, but it did give me a good excuse to uh, put down quite a lot of detail that hasn't been covered in print before the chapter on uh, Loch Ness monster where I talk about well the chapter on lake monsters and it's got obviously a lot of Nessie stuff in there I go through um some of the famous sightings and uh, talk about um some some interpretations of them that haven't been published before which some of which is brand new stuff which I stole from uh, with permission Dick Rayner who's a, fa- a well-known um investigator of Loch Ness phenomena um the um, discussion of Bigfoot, I kind of now now I I would regard myself as a skeptic, and as I said, I don't think the evidence that we have currently there's, there's there isn't there isn't evidence at the moment that convinces me that say Bigfoot might be real. <clears throat> yeah, um, but I'm not prepared to say that I dismiss it in entirety. I like I, I still do hope that it is real, and I still am waiting for something that might convince me. But doing this gave me the chance to um, to sort of combine combine what we know. We've got these various stories about how um, people think they can explain the Patterson footage and explain the footprints and the hairs and so on, and. Um, uh, I think I think I've covered some of that before. The cryptozoological, we touch on it, but um, but to combine all that, I I come away from it with a fairly kind of sceptical take. It's like, well, we don't have the evidence that we should have if there is a real animal here. The DNA evidence for Sasquatch has the alleged DNA evidence has not um, stood the tests it should. There's there's no compelling, despite what you've heard. The evidence from trackways is not compelling. All the things that make them, um, uh, you know, seem like real trackways can be explained in other ways. The hairs can all be explained as other things, and when they've been tested, they all turn out to be other things. The, the droppings, alleged Sasquatch feces, have all turned out to be other things, and, and you know, there's no bones and that stuff. So then you're left with the photographic evidence. Well, primarily you've got you're talking about the Patterson footage is the only compelling thing, and you've got this um, this case put forward by. Oh God, I've forgotten his name. Greg Long, I think. The this this book, The Hunting of Bigfoot, which sorry, The Making of Bigfoot, which uh, includes an enormous and a really quite impressive amount of um, biographical information 
on Roger Patterson and presents quite a compelling case, a circumstantial case against the validity of the, the, the footage. But, but I don't find uh, Long's case completely compelling because there are so many like problems with it you know it's the it's claimed that we know exactly who the guy in the suit was and how the suit was made and stuff and none of it actually really makes sense i have to say the making of bigfoot as well really kind of famous slash notorious book what how so how does it not make sense because i haven't read it but yeah so give me so so the guy the guy the guy claimed to be the man in the suit is a, a, a chunky, burly individual called, uh, I think, Bob Hieronymus. And it's said that his gait exactly matches that of Patty, the creature in the Patterson footage. And his proportions are a bit like it, but not yet. And his dis- he, when asked later on in an interview as to like where Bluff Creek is and all this kind of stuff, he didn't know, which seems odd, especially given that he's someone who's supposed to have like, lived in the... That, that area for for decades and uh, in his description of how the suit was made um i don't know I, i'm not i'm not saying that i don't fully accept it but i'm saying it's problematic it's difficult to i don't think that it's compelling enough to accept it off the bat which is what you know a lot of people call themselves skeptics would like to do so so hieronymus says that they had this like suit which was made out of i think horse hide and the bigfoot um, head was like a sort of like a, an American football player's helmet or something covered yeah. in fur, and that and he was able to do all the stuff that you see in the footage by just putting the suit on and you know swinging his arms an extra bit and looking around and stuff. And um, it's uh, I don't know. I do think it's a shame because I actually think that that is essentially what's going on. But people say that the suit is. You can see muscles and things like this. Yeah, yeah, and just, yeah. nah, you can't. Sorry, that is such a um, grainy, poor piece of footage. To try and take any detail out of that and say that you're seeing something, is, 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 it's all pareidolia, in my ex- um, opinion. But, um, yeah, I, I think sceptics will latch onto the first plausible-sounding explanation, right? Um, mm. That doesn't involve Bigfoot or UFOs, or, sorry, aliens or whatever. And it isn't uncommon for those first explanations to be wrong. So, yeah. yeah. Just because we've got a plausible explanation and a plausible person to have done it. No, I think people have been too keen to latch on to what Greg Long says and, and, and the case for Bob Hieronymus being the, the guy in the suit. And I wouldn't say that what we see in the um, Patterson film pg film patterson gimney film i wouldn't say that it's um pareidolia i do think that you see things there but the explanation like the explanation there's a bulge that we see on the creature's thigh which pro bigfoot people now explain as a herniation that we're seeing a herniation in one of its muscles which seem to be quite ridiculous um I, th- I think that is a, there is a thing there. There is a structure there, but the interpretation, the sort of bio- the pro Bigfoot biological explanation, is uh, difficult to be convinced by. It's some. It's more likely to be something. something I di- else. I disagree. I just with that level of grain, that could just be that the fur's brushed in a slightly different position in that area. In which case, you'll get something that looks like a shadow, and there you go. 
No, in that particular instance, you do see an, an obvious bulge. It's not just a little bit of fur. How do you know? It's, well, okay, it doesn't look like it. No, I know, but th- that's the crazy thing. And this sort of level of grain in a footage like in footage like this, just a little bit of dark patch will be interpreted by your brain as a bulge. Ah, uh, okay, all right. Okay, well, I'll take that. So, uh, you know, I think that trying to tease out a lot of detail about what's going on with that, the anatomy, is a fool's errand. I don't think you're ever going to be able to do it. And I guess mm. this is the main problem with the footage, of course, is that, okay, so even if we have no convincing explanation, and it sounds like, actually, I think this probably is the explanation that, you know, the... Um, I think it's a, it's, pro- it's the it's the strongest contender. Yeah, right? it, it is is a powerful circumstantial case against yeah. Patterson. Now there are some pro Bigfoot people. Rene de Hinden famously said this. Danny Perez has said it as well. But um, these people have said ignore the de- the biographical details about Patterson. Just look at the damn footage. But no, I don't think that's a sufficient way to approach it you have to look at the because the circumstantial the background i discuss all this in the book and it's been it was also discussed in um uh, loxton and prothero's abominable science and we mention it in the cryptozoological as well um we come up with this independently of loxton and prothero the circumstantial case against patterson is really strong the fact that the fact that he was drawing what what um bigfoot was meant to look like before he filmed it and and his drawing exactly matches what he filmed, pretty much. Uh, the fact that he was ho- heavily influenced by William Rose, a Bigfoot account of uh, the 1950s, uh, and, and again sort of replicated it in uh, what he filmed at Bluff Creek. And the fact that he was, you know, writing books about Bigfoot and trying to make money out of Bigfoot at the time and succeeded in doing something no one else did. I do think the circumstantial case against him is, is quite strong. Oh, let me say also that having mentioned Greg Long's book published in 2004 the making of bigfoot to anyone who's read it or looked at it i hope they may agree with me here it is an appalling read i really really (laughs) hate the way the book is done it's horrible no matter and that's nothing to do with nothing to do with my opinion on bigfoot or patterson the way he writes is just awful it's really horrible there's just a couple of things just drove me mad when i was reading it one thing is roger patterson was small in stature it's five foot four, and and long. Whenever he ever mentions Patterson, he has to he has to mention this. He calls him little, little. <laughs> Sometimes he, I think I counted it. He he calls him like he uses the word little in connection with with Patterson like twenty times in like three pages. Every single time, the little man did this. The little man ran along. The little man got on his little pony and went over in his little way to film Bigfoot. It's like. <laughs> Oh, you, Greg Long. <laughs> so, Greg Long is really tall and fat. So, when we write about Greg Long, we've got to say the fat man waddled over, sat down, he fat on, sat on his fat behind and read his fat book. So, sorry, it really drove me mad. Um, I just didn't think that was necessary at all. The book is very badly written, in my humble opinion. So, so yeah, got a whole chapter on all that stuff, tying together um, not only the, the, recent, uh, the recently constructed circumstantial case against Patterson, and therefore the uh, Patterson footage, Patterson film, which, Christ, it just never goes away, you know, how much time has been devoted to the discussion of that thing. Um, But also evaluation of the things like the Skookum body cast and uh, what Grover Krant said about tracks and um, Melba Ketchum and buddies and the alleged DNA evidence. Um, Yeah, that's I've, I've tried to tie all these things together. 
And uh, there being a chapter on crypto hominids uh, in, in general, or mystery primates, anomalous primates, whatever you want to call them, um, I also talk about something that, again, will, will be familiar to listeners of this podcast and readers of Tet Zoo, that the fact that um, how have people interpreted these? The, the thing that was really interesting to me about a lot of cryptids is not just that people have come up with these ideas, but that the people that have promoted the ideas most forcefully have generally come at these things from the point of view of, you know, we're doing proper zoology here. We're actually looking at these things as real animals. Yeah. So they've interpreted them within an ecological and evolutionary perspective. So you've got this um, very prominent streak through the mystery anomalous primate literature that the people have tried to interpret them within the context of whether they could be um, lineages known from the fossil record and what the, how they might fit within our understanding of hominid evolutionary history. I haven't really thought about this before, but why is there such a strong desire amongst um, people who call themselves cryptozoologists to get these things recognised as... Well, to get other people to believe that these things do exist... You know, especially the scientific community. Like, name them, right? Well, that's not how it works. Even if we thought it might exist, you wouldn't name it with no specimen, right? And I find it kind of funny that... Uh, I've never really thought about this before, but there's a lot of argument about, well, accept that it exists, rather than trying to go out and find it. Mm. Or just speculate on it, because it's fun. You know, there's a sort of a... There's a drive there, like... Admit it! Admit it! Bigfoot exists! Yeah, yeah, that is an interesting thing. Um, there is a degree of um, rebellion and anger among some of these individuals that they they became or were or are unhappy with. Okay, imagine some air quotes here. You know, mainstream ivory tower uh, science and really, really furious that science refuses to accept these self-evident facts and that it's their job to... Those, this, uh, we, we played on this in the Cryptozoologicon. We, yeah. we, we really went to town on this, and it's not meant to be... Uh, it's not a parody. It really is true of what some cryptozoologists have said. They've said that those stupid, lazy, blinkered, ivory tower scientists, fat cats sat in their plush chairs behind their giant desks, never getting off their behinds. Um, they just need to be picked up by the scruff of the neck and slung out of the door with no pension, no pay, because they are useless and they're not doing their job properly and they're cowardly. Cowardly. Okay. All these things have gen I'm not exaggerating. All those things have been said by actual cryptozoologists. So uh, Bernard Hooverman's is, um, uh, biography published a couple of years ago was it's in French, but it's called uh, Bernard Hooverman's Rebel of Science. <laughs> <laughs> as if, as if like, his his raison d'être was uh, that uh, he was there to you know yeah like stamping on the stamping on the head of science to get it to accept the yeti is real it's real <laughs> so there is that yeah but i guess yeah i'm you'd, obviously that exists and it's a strong sort of thing i'm just sort of thinking why what's the point of that and i suppose there could be an argument that they could be arguing that um they could want you know 
funding for expeditions or things like this. Mm. But that's that it's very rarely phrased like that. Yeah. You know, it's, there's no argument of, well, you, we should be spending more money trying to find cryptids. It's more just, you should believe it. Yeah. Or well, a part of it, part of this attitude, or related to this attitude, it's the fact that there are people in the community who, um, who, do, who do argue that we need these things to be scientifically accepted so that they can receive uh, conservation status. So I'm sure I've mentioned this before on the podcast. Um, Peter Scott and Robert Rines gave the Loch Ness Monster a scientific name, Nisiteris rhombopteryx, not because they were having a laugh and hoaxing everyone, but because they genuinely accepted that this really was a real animal and that if it's a real animal and it's a small population, then it needs protection. So their argument was that in order that protection be awarded, it has to be scientifically recognised and the first step in that is giving it a name. And there are people that have said the same about Bigfoot. There's a, um, there's a group in North America called, uh, is it the North American Wood Ape Conservancy? North American Wood Ape Conservancy. Nat- oh, I can't remember the acronym. But, yeah, they say that they want this thing to be um, accepted because it really needs conservation status because it's presumably quite endangered. So, now, if you, if you genuinely have reason to believe these are, these are genuine animals because you've had an encounter that convinced you, um, then I can kind of get that. I, can, I do think that some of the people, some of the motivation here comes from an honest, you know, desire to see this thing, these, these, these animals, alleged animals, uh, assisted. I do think that's part of it. But, um, but I think that's a small part of it, the fact that I can only think of two yeah. examples. Yeah, but also I guess the problem is that how do you conserve something when you, you know nothing about its ecology? Right? But they're always saying they do know a lot. No, about they know it. about a lot of our. Yeah, yeah. But they, they claim to know yeah, a, right. just a, which is one, one of the <laughs> one of the most crazy. Yeah. yeah, one of the most amazing things about this subject is that um, not only you know if I was going to endorse a cryptid, I was I would say, and you know I've I have been there have been times in my life where I have thought, well, the evidence, you know, I said this for, for Bigfoot years ago. It's like, well, I think the evidence at the moment is, is pretty good. Probably, this probably is a real animal. So, well, at the moment, what do we know about it? Well, we know that people see it in these kinds of areas and there are these sort of alleged things that, um, you know, uh, things about its diet and sort of forest it prefers. But the fact that you have people saying that, that, because they don't just go that far. They then go so much further saying, well, if we accept all these observations, then we... You know, there's, there's whole books written about the alleged ecology and biology and behaviour yeah. of, of Bigfoot. Talking to people talking about specifics of its diet and social behaviour. <sighs> and, and it overlaps. It overlaps um, 100% with people who are just saying, like, whoa... <laughs> <laughs> what words do I use? Well, basically, over the top, you know, unbelievable level of crazy. Um, you don't have to look very far in the Bigfoot research community to see people that talk about habitat. Uh, oh, what's it called? Is it called hab? I want to say habitation. That's the wrong word. Habituation. Habituation. Where people that go out in the woods and then communicate with. Uh, Bigfoot uh, vocally or uh, through throwing pine cones or stones um, and people that say they've got like telepathic 
communication with them or people that have Todd standing, um, all this stuff about, uh, knowing exactly their social behavior and where they live and their little social groups and how they behave. And, uh, do I mean Todd standing? Is that the right word? Todd's Todd standing. I, I think is this guy who, um, uh, filmed, uh, claimed to film several Bigfoots at close range and they all look suspiciously Muppetish. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, it's Ted's, Ted, Todd Standing. Um, and, and Todd Standing stuff is all about how you can, he says you can go out into these certain places in the woods where it's the most, it's the most dangerous place you could possibly ever go. Um, you'll probably die if you go out there, but this is the most dangerous. You can go out to these places. Basically, only he can do it. It's so dangerous. Yeah. And he knows there's like a little community of them. And you can find like one, which is like, the watcher or something it's like the, that's the individual that's like away from the family group and it will warn them of things happening um and 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 they've learned about all this behavioral interaction that occurs between the watcher or whatever it's called this one in the zone and the family group and how they move backwards and forwards and 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 the stuff that the um the russian um researchers uh um I'm trying to remember any of their names at the top of my head i can't right now but um uh, Dmitry Bogdanov and, and those guys, they um, they say all this stuff about how they've observed um, our masses or our masties at close range and uh, about their social behaviour and how they can recognise individuals and they really do make it sound as if all of this stuff, both in North America and in Eurasia, people are saying they've got as much information, first-hand information on the behaviour, ecology and bulge of these things as people have that studied, you know, gorillas in Rwanda or, or chimpanzees yeah. in, in wherever, tropical forests or orangutans, whatever. And it's like, well... <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I can I can get that animals like Bigfoot are meant to be exceptional animals. They're not meant to be animals like the other animals we know. They are meant to be something very unusual about them. But but the fact that they claim to have this amount of data and yet have nothing that could convince there's nothing that can convince you if you're appropriately skeptical. Yeah, uh, you know you've got that much data, but you don't have like. A uh, nice clear video of one walking along or anything like that, you know, or but, hairs or tracks or droppings yeah, that have or, stood the yeah. test of time. But it, yeah, I mean, the easiest thing to get, which is video, right? Yeah, or decent photos from several angles or something like this. You just don't really see that stuff. No. So what they say now, again, does not take long to to go several layers into like you know Bigfoot research. What people say now is that these animals can are aware of cameras, can detect cameras, mm. can detect like infrared, deliberately conceal themselves, deliberately conceal um, themselves from cameras. They won't allow themselves to be seen by cameras and will deliberately do things so that cameras can't photograph them. Like they'll put leaves in the way of the camera lens. Um, or they can see, yeah, like infrared, you know, uh, trigger beams and stuff. It's starting um, to get into the conspiracy theory sort of angle, isn't it? Like this sort of, well, there's special reasons why we can't get this evidence. Yeah. You know, early days of UFOs, no one thought like 
aliens might be coming to Earth. The, the government conspiracy stuff came later to explain why they could never get any evidence. Um, it feels like Bigfooters are heading down that that road. Well, I think many of them have. Many of them yeah. do talk about there being a government conspiracy. The idea being, I can't remember if I mentioned this in the book, but the idea being that um, if there is like you know an endangered hominid living in places that are currently yeah, logged. Yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah, you have to make special efforts to... I didn't, but. yeah, yeah, that, I know about that, but I was thinking more of this sort of, you start adding on behaviours to explain, mm-hmm. rather than it being intrinsic, that it's just a rare animal that tends to avoid people living in a remote area. It's actually got, oh, it's actually got specific behaviours around cameras now, right? You know, you start bolting on all these weird little... Yeah. Um, things to explain why you can't get evidence yeah Yeah. and i wish i mean this i always think this sounds what i'm about to say does sound slightly arrogant so in an unusual change of pace for tesi podcasts um forgive me but um i also wish that more people who are who have themselves become convinced of the reality of we're not just talking about bigfoot but like you know mystery animals across the board um there, there is this common kind of belief or perception that, hey, I saw it, man, or seeing is believing, or you don't know because you didn't see what I saw. It's like, I, I've i seen some stuff, man, You've and seen some, some things, stuff, man. Yeah. And, and I can tell you that what you have perceived with your eyes is not the same as what actually existed in nature. You know that. I know that. Everybody that's thought about this knows that. This is not a controversial point of view. What we perceive and then what we remember and so on is not really the same as what exists. There's a million cases demonstrating this. But there seems to be this strong, you know, a, this, a strong theme throughout the whole of uh, the, those who, people who support the existence of Bigfoot and Lake Monsters and so on is this just blanket, simple belief that you saw a thing that's because what you remember seeing is what existed. And um, and you just know, you just know that when someone says, well, I was in the woods and a big shaggy creature stood up in front of me, okay, nine times out of ten, maybe 9.9 times out of ten, the distances involved do not match what people remember or describe. And the encounter itself doesn't match what 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 was described. Mm. And... Uh, and and when you hear of um, people saying that they saw uh, a Bigfoot across the other side of a valley, so like distances <laughs> of not tens of metres, but hundreds of metres. Like, I look at animals in the wild every day. That's no exaggeration. I was doing it this morning. And I can tell you that you see stuff tens of metres off. It's like, my eyesight isn't that bad. But it's like, I'm not 100% sure that what I saw was what actually existed. Yeah. Especially when it's an unknown animal that is also is also said by its proponents to be able to, okay, again within the Bigfoot law, Bigfoot is said to be able to sometimes walk on all fours like a bear. In fact, some researchers say that it sometimes deliberately mimics a bear, <laughs> <laughs> and other people say that it can lie down and bury itself in the leaf litter, and it can crawl along like a SAS person along yeah. the forest floor all this kind of stuff and it can swing from trees like a monkey yeah um and it can swim underwater mm-hmm. um it's like but there are you know wow yeah i don't need to say anymore yeah it's like before this becomes like the bigfoot show again <laughs> we should say we have a bigfoot special episode yeah. in the in our extensive archives we do episode three i believe um 
we I, I think we should talk about some of the other ones. And I think the prehistoric survivors thing is quite interesting, especially mm. from a cultural point of view, because you've got a confluence of several interests there. It's yep. not just traditional cryptozoologists. Yes. There's a lot of, uh, you know, creationists that are quite motivated to find these things for some reason. Yeah. Yeah, now, a thing I um, mentioned in the book, in Hunting Monsters, and again, it's in the cryptozoological and also, um, the, it's, it's really common in the literature on Makila Mbembe and these alleged living dinosaurs, living non-bird dinosaurs, there, there's, you'll, you'll see cryptozoologists say again and again that, that modern Africa, and in particular we're talking about the Congo Basin, um, it's, hasn't changed since the Mesozoic. Oh, the dark African, <laughs> the, the dark heart of Africa is unchanged for many millions of years. And who's to say, who's to say what could be, what could be there? And um, I make the point in the book that this is complete rubbish it's com- it's not true at all and it's very easy if you go into the technical literature on the not just the evolutionary history not just you know, the history of animal lineages but if you look at the uh, what we know about the geological history the climatic history of africa it's like the whole idea that the con- the continent as a whole let alone bits of the continent the idea that it's just remained in this sort of mesozoic stage of its development is absolutely contradicted by everything we know. Um, not only do, okay, to start with, we know that Africa has been, uh, you know, an important, uh, like, site of origin of many groups of animals that have spread out from the continent and loads of stuff has happened in the continent, you know, like bovids and primates, including our own lineage and elephants and all that stuff. You know, there's all those exciting animals evolved and did lots of stuff in Africa. But then things like the geological history is, is crazy complicated. The climatic history, the rainforests, no, they haven't unchained, been unchanged into the Mesozoic. They consist predominantly of young things and they waxed and waned so much that during as recently as like the Pleistocene, they reckon that the tropical African rainforests were just reduced to like a few small pockets. Um, they weren't where they are now and uh, they, they certainly haven't been unchanged since the time of, you know, since the Mesozoic Age of Dinosaurs. So that whole idea is, is known to be bogus. Uh, and it has been known to be bogus for some decades. I think cryptozoologists just ignore this completely. Mm-hmm. Um, I do cover this in the book with with citations for people that are interested. And I also think, so that's like one prong of this problem. Another one is that uh, due to the um, the history of our own culture, uh, you know, as in like you know European culture, uh, tied in with like the history of slavery and racism and stuff, there's been this idea that Africa is some kind of like backwards hinterland where all all people all people that live in Africa are like you know live in the jungle and have spears and <laughs> and, and and the whole of Africa is like you know backwards bongo bongo land that hasn't changed for, since the Paleolithic again no that's that's like that's like colonial racism of the worst kind it's complete mischaracterization of such an incredibly complex and sort of dynamic continent which uh you know yeah yeah of course there are people that live in forests and 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 are doing things that are similar to what we imagine people have been doing for tens of thousands of years but is it is it fair to make that characterization for like a, a large part of Africa? And it's I, yeah, and it's obviously totally not. And I think I think people that haven't been don't realize this. But you go 
to your average country in Africa now, most people have phones with cameras on them, right? Yeah. It's like the rest of the world. You'll find <laughs> if there were these things around, you would expect photos to come out. You yeah. know, it's, it's like the rest of the world in that respect. There's not, yeah, it's, it's not a techno- technologically backwards place, if you see what yeah. I mean. It's, yeah, it's a funny sort well, of notion that people have. Yeah, I just when I did that, there's a Tetsu article I did about the history of uh, domestic horse breeds in Africa. You don't have to do much research on anything to do with technology, warfare, agriculture in Africa. And I don't think it's as well known as it should be. But like the anthropology of Africa is not only crazily diverse. Bear in mind, Africa is like the size of like was it Europe, Australia, China, the United States <laughs> together? It's just a vast vast area but um but the fact that yeah this like civilization entire civilizations that people haven't heard of um and the mounted cavalry in like nigerian peoples and stuff that i wrote about was just you know that's new to most people that was but so this i think the the like bedrock of the surviving african dinosaurs thing is based on Racism is a little bit unfair because I wouldn't say that people are necessarily racist, but it does come from like a very imperialistic colonial attitude towards Africa and a completely unrealistic view of African history, ecology, biogeography. And you've, so at some, at some point in the early 20th century, based on that misconception of Africa and what it's like, people sort of bolted on this like surviving dinosaur thing. Wouldn't it be cool if... There were like giant dragony things that still lived in the Congo. Yeah, yeah. And what do you know? What do you know? There's people that do have myths about giant dragony monsters. In as Loxton and Prothero say that um some of the earliest stories that were incorporated into Makila Mabembi mythology are nothing to do with the Congo. They come from like uh I think Namibia. So that's like, you know, extreme southwest of Africa, like, you know, deserty place, nothing at all to I think that's right. Yeah. But um there's a, these are the early stories and nothing at all to do with like alleged sauropod type things in the Congo. I think then later writers are bought on, bought onto this, latched onto this. And, um, and then it became a crystallized law with people like Sanderson and Hoovermans who basically were arguing that anything goes in the world of undiscovered, in as goes undiscovered, alleged undiscovered animals. And then as soon as it crystallized into like, the idea of the swamp-dwelling sauropod hanging out in the Congo, people latched onto that, and you had people from a biological, zoological background saying, oh, yes, this makes sense. Why couldn't an animal like that survive? (laughs) And then later on, you had creationists latching onto it as well for their own reasons. And I guess the interesting thing about the creationists is that they don't care about any of that by um, the history of it because they don't believe that the world is old. So, and therefore the fact that the rainforests haven't been there for that long doesn't really matter for them because they don't believe any of that evidence anyway, mm. right? They don't believe in those changes. And But I, I think it's interesting that they think it's going to prove what they think it's going to prove or supported their evidence mm. somehow. That if they find something that looks a bit like a, what, what is it? Yeah, what is it meant to look like? Maybe, maybe a Stegosaurus or something, right? Mm. Some various descriptions that are all cra- crazily different, aren't they? That that's suddenly going to we're going to chuck out evolution. Yep. But they're the ones actually pumping probably the most 
effort and money into searching for cryptids in exotic locations? Exotic yeah. for North Americans and Europeans, anyway, is what I yeah. would say, right? You know, yeah. they're out there in the in the Congo and um, Papua New, New Guinea, Guinea as well. Yeah, yeah. Jonathan Whitcomb. I, I talk about Whitcomb and his research on the Ropen. Um, having debated as best you can uh, with him on uh, online several times. Um, uh, this this hunting monsters has has done well in uh, reviews. It's currently on Amazon. Currently, it's got a four point four out of five, which I think is pretty good. But there are a few critical reviews, and often, you know, oftentimes they say stuff that makes you think, "Oh yeah, okay, that's fair enough. I should have done that differently." But sometimes they say stuff is just like not fair or appropriate. And um, one reviewer said that in in my discussion of how creationists have latched on to these tropical cryptids i say that that um you know most most people who call themselves cryptozoologists are of the bernard hooverman's school they want cryptozoology to be consistent with mainstream science they want these things to be accepted within like an evolutionary context and they see it as as part of like science in general like we're doing it for science whereas the creationists doing it don't give a damn about science really and probably want what probably want science to be like eroded or destroyed and are doing it for their own nefarious means they think that like discovering a living pterosaur would would prove the bible true and would encourage you know belief in religion and i say this i say this in the book i say Mm. you know the creationists supporting mckinney they are not the friends of those of us who are like you know pro-science they're like, they're like our enemies okay and a reviewer said that i shouldn't have said that because uh that's my personal feelings getting in the way of things and influencing my uh, opinion there but i'll tell you it isn't because unfortunately uh, i can't remember off the top of my head the specific individual concerned but i have uh seen in fact more than once creationists say that they, you know, there's creationists who became qualified in science and then went on to try and publish scientific papers. And specifically, they said that because they wanted to bring it down from the inside. They wanted to bring science down. So there are creationists who say they want to destroy, uh, yeah, destroy, like erode belief in science. And I know this is quite complex because people that call themselves creationists are not necessarily all literal seven-day creationists, nor are you necessarily a creationist and be fully opposed to all the science stuff and, you know, medicine and the conservation of animals and the sorts of things that science is involved in. But on the other hand, there are some people that, that are, that, that do have their own nefarious agenda. And um, Whitcomb even says in his book on Ropens, uh, there's a bit where he's talking to someone from New Guinea and he says that he really wants, uh, Whitcomb really wants to um, demonstrate that Ropens are real because in his country, in the United States, um, things are going bad. The whole country is going down the pan because mm-hmm. people don't believe in God. And if they did believe in God, then things would be better. And <laughs> so by showing people a Ropen, I can make them believe in God. And that's how everything will be solved. 
and it's like that kind of uh, uh, not quite yeah yeah i don't think that'll work out as you think it would even if you could find a rope but um yeah i mean i didn't think this was a controversial topic that that's why they're doing it is it uh sorry what what that creationists are attempting to find these cryptids because they think it will erode belief in evolution yeah no no you're right no it's it's widely acknowledged that, that is why they're doing it and um i th- and i to my knowledge i think those those who've gone on record have said specifically that that is why they're interested in it because it's obvious that when we do um get reports from them that um when when you see their behavior in the field it's like these aren't people that have trained to uh collect biological ecological data and there's there's cases in do- documentaries okay what you see in a documentary doesn't reflect what necessarily happens in the field but um you do see yeah. cases where <laughs> there's one where a group of creationists um they're somewhere in democratic republic of congo and part of modern makila mbembe law is that makila mbembe is again this is very similar to what we're saying about bigfoot a minute ago and bigfoot evading cameras one of the reasons that Makina Bembe is so hard to find is because it builds it tunnels into the riverbank and it builds these giant caves underground. Right. And um and then it's unfindable. Mm. But you can find these Makela Mbembe cave breathing holes and they're these openings in the ground like about the size of your fist and uh, that is an opening into one of these caves right mm. and in the documentary they find one of these Michaela Membi breathing breathing holes and they're saying oh this under here this is like the entrance of the cave and there'll be like a tunnel connecting this cave to the river bank you know the river's just over there tens of meters away mm. and um so this is this is it this is Michaela Membi down here right that's it we're going home now. Yeah, going home now. <laughs> like, it up. Hold on, hold on. Like, if there was, um, what is the thing to do there? The thing to do there is to lower a camera in, or shine in with a torch, or even dig it open, or something, yeah. just to you know. But do they do any of that? No. Like, you see that sort of thing time and time again. So, yeah, I've, and you do wonder. Like with this sort of stuff, how much of that is just how much of it is showboating? Do they really think they're going to find it, or are they? Re- uh, it's pretty it's cool to say difficult you've to try to find it. Yeah. Hey, so babe. <laughs> guess where I went this summer? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but I, I remember watching a documentary about a chap trying to find um, Noah's Ark. And then the Ark of the Covenant. He was trying to find all these biblical things. And he'd always just, he just, you know, I, if only I was allowed to dig here. But uh, unfortunately, the authorities won't, won't let me. So <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to go home. Damn. Nope, I finally tracked it down. It's at the bottom of the, it's at the bottom of the Red Sea. Oh, well, that's, <laughs> that's a shame. <laughs> My journey ends here. <laughs> that's a shame. But I've got to go home tomorrow. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Our budget runs out tomorrow, so that's it. Oh, dear. Um. And that can't be a coincidence that they keep doing that. Um, <laughs> so you do wonder with some of these people whether they are in it for the adventure rather than trying to find it. Well, yeah, so, I'd love to go to the Congo. I don't think there's Makila Memi, but I'd love to go there <laughs> to uh, just go around in boats. And and a, and a thing that's underemphasized in the literature on Makila Memi, except in the sceptical literature, is how canny 
local people are. It's like, <laughs> example is, so the uh, local people in the Congo have got these, you know, these vague stories, virtually none of which are from recent years. They're all from my father's grandfather mm. said, said he knew of a place where people said they killed um, one of these animals. They're all that stories of that nature. Not all of them, not all of them, but most of them. Um, so they've got they've got these kind of stories, and those stories get repeated again and again and again in in the books. I mean, I'm, for those of you who know, I'm talking about like uh, Roy Mackle's book, A Living Dinosaur Question Mark, and and Hooverman's is a book of Donio Dragons, and a few others. And um, but over time, so uh, the the people claim that they that they know of more and more stuff, and they just haven't had cause to mention it before. Now they do those people do benefit in some way from uh, Westerners coming in and looking for McKinnon. But they, they, they have benefited um, somehow, like, in literal terms, as in, like, they've gotten presents and stuff out of it. But in the broadest possible sense of the term, they've benefited it because it's fun. <laughs> they've had visitors come in for a laugh. They like it. You know, they're social. Um, and uh, and I think that part of the reason... Oops, sorry. Part of the reason they... Um, keep coming up with this stuff is just because because it's like they're like did you know but now in the the areas of the congo that are supposed to have makilambembe which is meant to be sauropod like emmanenatuka which is the meant to be like horned dinosaur like mobile mobile which is meant to be stegosaur like um naguma manini which is meant to be gigantic serpentine uh, serrated back uh, congamato which is meant to be pterosaur like uh, there's also a thing that's meant to be like a saber-toothed cat. And now there's giant spiders. Oh, yes. Also, oh. Giant spiders. <laughs> there we go. Like people-sized spiders. Yeah. Which are, like, okay, not not like full adult, but like sort of the size of like I say a four-year-old or something. Um, these spiders live in the sur- surrounds of the villages. Uh, I forget the name. We've got them in Cryptozoologicon 2. Mm. Memo did one for us. Um. And the reporters, sorry, the investigators who learned about this were like, why didn't you mention this earlier? <laughs> Bear in mind, people have been coming to the exact same village near Lake Tilly for like 20 or 30 years now. And they're like, well, no one ever <laughs> no one asked. <laughs> no one asked, yeah. And it's like, yeah, come on, come on. These people, like, you're treating these people as if they're just like, you know, naive, truly like, you know, idiots. It's like, no, come on. Give them some credit. They're, they're making stuff up. To uh... yeah, I think this is this goes back to the the racism angle of some of this, and I think that what is it? The sort of the idea of a uh, the um, naive noble savage who wouldn't lie to us, you know, mm-hmm. or or you know, and in a lot of these places, there probably are people that believe it, just like yeah. just like there are a lot of believers in Bigfoot and maybe Loch Ness monster as well. So probably, I'm sure it runs the full spectrum of true well, believers there to people who are just exploiting it for, um, yeah, yeah, for the tourism or the money or the or just to have a laugh. Yeah, if there are if there are true believers, there, there must there must be, but that, that that generally doesn't come across in the accounts. What comes across in the accounts is that is that people uh, Westerners who come in, they know that people in the area say that they have a, a knowledge or a legend or a story about one of these entities and the people are like 
yeah, 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 we've, yeah, there's this story. And they're like, no, you tell us the story now. And they're like, no, we told you before. We didn't know we heard of it. And they're like, no, you tell us the story now. <laughs> there's, actually, there's actually a story in Roy Mackle's A Living Dinosaur where he says they go to a village and they say, now we know that you people here know of the Makila Membi. They say, yes, that's our word for rainbow. I said, no. No, no, that's your word for sauropod dinosaur, like brontosaurus. No, no, it's our word for rainbow. No, you listen to me. We were here last time, and you told us that that was the word for sauropod, monster, like this, opens up Zdenic Burian. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 it's definitely <laughs> rainbow. Hey, listen to me. They get their guns out. And actually say, I'm not joking, they say they didn't change their minds until we threatened them with our guns. <laughs> what? Yes. I don't know if they're with me here now. I'm not joking. It says they changed their mind when we got our guns out. And then they then they started talking about Makina Membi, sure enough. <laughs> I bet I did. <laughs> well, yeah, they were there with their kids and stuff. Yeah, good work, good work. That's uh, So the, some of it is pure, uh, like, misinterpreting or deliberate, deliberate misreading or leading of these alleged... Witnesses. There's a very similar story. It doesn't involve guns or violence. In um, Whitcomb's book, Searching for Ropens, Ropens, this alleged yet yeah, living pterosaur, bioluminescent pterosaur, as you know, you've you've illustrated, haven't you? Um, as a big as a big Ropen believer, <laughs> this, I wish I had the book with me here. I don't have it with me here now. But this this oh my god, this interview is just hilarious. Okay, I'll see if I can remember it. Whitcomb is introduced to this man who is claimed to have been a a ropen witness and uh, and wickham has really been trying hard to track down he hasn't because he hasn't met anyone who's a first-hand witness they're all people that's like oh yeah yeah my grandfather remembered this story ever and um she says so so you arrived at this area and you saw a ropen no okay let me say it again you arrived at the place (laughs) and you saw the ropen no, 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 no Ropen <laughs> when I arrived. Right. Rope and, and Whitcomb says in his book, so I concluded that when he arrived at the place, the Ropen wasn't there and it arrived sometimes afterwards. Okay, so it arrived sometimes afterwards. How big would you say it was? Big. Uh, five meters? Yeah, five meters. Okay. <laughs> How big was one of its wings? Five meters. What? But, for, what? <laughs> wingtip to wingtip? One wing from here to here? Yeah, yeah, five meters, five meters. Okay, okay, so one wing was five meters. Yeah, 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 five meters, five meters. Okay, so uh, how big was it from other dimension? From, yeah. yeah, yeah, five meters. Five meters, yeah. But, but you just said that. <laughs> you just said that was, okay, okay, so then he writes again in his book, I concluded that not only was it five meters from, from you know, body, back, middle of the back to the wingtip, but it was also five meters. I presume he meant this, and, and Whitcomb explains how he interpreted that different measurement. So what did it look like? From above. Oh, yeah, from above. Brown, dark. Okay. Uh, how far away was it? It was in the sky. <laughs> so how could you... He doesn't say, so how did you know what it looked like from above? <laughs> because he describes it from above. It's very dark. Very dark from above. And, uh, okay. Yeah. And and then he says, now, it was quite difficult to, <laughs> to conduct this interview, but it's like, it's like textbook, textbook example of how not to do an interview. When we... Remind me in future to read it. This, yeah. this, uh, this interview. It's so funny because, yeah. I mean, so. I've seen some of those in those documentaries where they're interviewing these people, and you just think, 
This is some really bad miscommunication <laughs> going on here. No, the clarifying questions aren't clarifying. The, the person is not talking about what you think they're talking about. Yeah. Well, I suppose they could be, but you're not getting the right information out of them. Um, and, and again, even if you were, if you just went to some person in, you know, wherever, you know, New Guinea, Congo. No, I'm thinking here, right? Canberra. Or, yeah, All right. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> or you know, up in Washington State, and we're interviewing them. How do you like without the social cues? How can you tell how crazy this person is? <laughs> I mean, maybe they gave you the vi- village crazy to talk to, <laughs> and so it's sort of like hanging on their every word. Like even if they, even if the interview was interviewer was t- interviewee was telling you what you think they are. Yeah. You know, I think that <laughs> sort of research is, mm-hmm. yeah, yes. but then we know this already. I mean, the, I guess the same problems do come up in uh, uh, English-speaking cryptid land as well, don't they? People Not do go much. and interview the, uh, the, <laughs> the people <laughs> that saw Loch Ness Monster and uh, all that stuff. Yeah. Mm. But you've got an extra layer of complication. Yeah. I was at Loch Ness a couple of weeks ago, and um, I hung out with Adrian Shine, you know, primary uh, Loch Ness investigator. And I've met him a few times before, but it's like everything that I have said and I say in Hunting Monsters about Loch Ness and, and Lake Monsters in general, he has already said before everything. The fact that not only can we explain, like... um uh, the, the, most of the classic cases. We, we've now got a really good paper trail demonstrating that virtually all the classic sightings are almost certainly hoaxes or misinterpretations. But the um, what we know about the the way the uh, you know the sort of animals that occur on the the lock and the, the effects of wake wakes and waves and stuff explains um, virtually all of it. And one thing that I got wrong in the book is the uh, the interpretation of the surgeon's photo. I wish I'd done a better job on that because um, cause I've never really been completely convinced by this story about the, um, you know, the story that the the surgeon's photo, that one. Yeah. Uh, that that um, that it's based on, uh, it's a photograph of this um, submarine, toy submarine with, with um, what's called plastic wood. Mounted on top. I've never really been convinced by that, but that's because I hadn't. I'd forgotten. Uh, I shouldn't. I shouldn't do this at any of the literature in front of me. But there's this book. Um, damn it, I've forgotten. But there's this book written by two investigators that's really compelling. There's so much more to that story. I wish I'd done a better job on that in the in the book. But uh, it's great to go to Loch Ness and to um, I don't know this this whole because you know this whole mythology. This whole idea, the fact that there have been so many people there that honestly believed that um, there was there was a creature, and you can go to the specific spots, you know, where you know people saw things. Yeah, um, I would love to do a Tetsukon at Loch Ness. Well, so would I. I'm there again in the summer. You go there all the time. Yeah, it's my been there fifty times. <laughs> Uh, um, Tim Tim Dinsdale, Tim Dinsdale, primary investigator of of Loch Ness Monster, wrote many books on it. He um. Yeah, you know, and filmed this famous thing, often said to be a monster's hump, but it's almost definitely a boat. Uh, he lived in London, 
but he 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 went up there like fifty times and um yeah. spent spent time up there. He believed it was haunted and he heard horrible screams and things, yeah. which was because of, I think I'm allowed to say there was some unpleasant stuff happening at uh, 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 um, yeah I won't say any more, but um yeah, there's definitely definitely a human explanation for the horrible noises he heard but um but yeah he he believed in uh, um Dick Rayner and I sat down. Well, last time I was up there, and we went through like a lot of the photographic evidence, and um, yeah, basically similar to what I said a minute ago, you can explain all of them now as in some semi-satisfactory way. I'm not saying it's ever case closed, but you can provide a better explanation than that. Oh, it's actually like a you know a living plesiosaurus or an unknown giant amphibian or whatever, um, and. Uh, but it's exciting to think that there was a time when people like took these photographs and honestly believed that wow, we are on the cusp. We are on the cusp of uh, of capturing this thing for science. Like in the seventies, when the the people from the the Rhine's um, Academy of Applied Sciences expeditions, when they were getting photographs of like what they thought were flippers and uh, sonar traces and stuff, they thought were big animals. They honestly thought, oh my god days away days away from nailing this beast and if you pardon the expression I don't mean that uh, um, um, but they, from you know, pinning it down and uh, yeah yeah so okay so uh, I wanted to talk about the uh, Ozen Cadnock Tiger the Queensland Tiger as well but I think we've we've covered enough stuff there yep. there's like I say seven chapters in the book and it's certainly not everything I could have said about cryptozoology and given that Hunting Monsters is currently out as an ebook, and ebooks do suck, I re- <laughs> I really do want it to be out as a proper book, like a, a proper physical thing I can hold in my hands. And uh, uh, ebooks don't suck if you've got a nice reading device. They just look rubbish, though. They just look like it's a word document. This just doesn't have the same. You know, just, just doesn't have the same thing as a <laughs> books look that. rubbish. They look like a printout. <laughs> it does look like a printout of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> well, I like books. <laughs> okay, it's so, full of them. I can't move. And at, and at two, what was it? Two thirty nine or something? Something along those lines. Yeah. Just go buy it. Yeah. All right. Uh, so three dollars, three forty two dollars. Yep. And in the UK, that's about two pounds something. So, if you're a listener of this podcast, then it's probably your moral duty to go and, <laughs> to go and buy it because because uh, uh, if it comes out in paper form, it should give me a chance to correct some of the egregious errors. Two pounds thirty nine uh, in the UK, and thank you to the people who have read it and have reviewed it. Thank you to nearly all of you. Nearly. <laughs> Do you want to hear my favourite my favourite review? Okay. Sorry, I've just gone away from the American site. Uh, it's a one star review, and it <laughs> says, uh, "Oh, come on, God, that's so stupid." Okay. Uh, the The review is titled "Like to see him look some witness in the eye." Dot dot dot. Basically, cryptids don't exist. All sightings and other evidence is made up, misidentified, or hoaxed. Like to see him look some witness in the eye and tell them that? 
exclamation mark. This book is a slap in the face to people in the field wearing out their shoe leather looking for answers. His mind is totally closed on all kind of possibilities. Obviously has not got mud on his boots. Mm. Apparently cryptids don't exist since they have completely evaded scientific <laughs> detention. <laughs> <laughs> all is missing, missing tripred or misidentified. Yeah. And there's one response to that. The people in the field wearing out their shoe leather, quotes, have produced no credible evidence, indistinct footprints, hairs from known species, DNA samples from known species, or else so degraded that no analysis was conclusive. And that wasn't me responding, that's someone else. So I, I, I was expecting for more like venomous negative comments along those lines. I love that. Scientific detention. Scientific detention. <laughs> I was, I was planning on photographing my boots and, uh, yeah. So, but other than that, it's well, done. I think they deserve scientific detention. <laughs> you know, they're pretty naughty. <laughs> For evading away, science. Hiding us, yeah. We, evading science, science with a capital S. Yeah. They should be put in detention. Yeah. It's naughty. naughty. Go and sit in the corner, you naughty Nessie. <laughs> yeah. okay let's wrap this thing up then let's microwave this puppy um lovely okay so uh yeah so we just finished okay so yeah please go and buy the book Uh, i don't want to beg but (laughs) um but you can also buy various of our other books some of which are available irregular books i've got another book coming out in september i'll talk about that later on the year i tweet at no Try not. Do or do not. There is no try. At Tetsu. Is that the end of you? I'll do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I, t- I, I, I tweet at at um, the John Conway. People have probably forgotten why you do the Star Wars quotes in the middle of that, haven't they? They're not idiots. They can work it out for themselves. No, because you, you only said at at once, and I think it was in... <laughs> episode two or well, something there we go you've just explained it more yeah. than have you seen have you seen the, the have you seen the the rogue one trailer no i don't oh, watch for God's sake, what are you doing with your time i don't oh. watch trailers anymore Jesus. i've decided you know what things aren't for me trailers and superhero films <sighs> i am never going to watch another superhero film and i'm not going to watch any more trailers you should go and see deadpool you're like deadpool you won't like you won't like batman v soups because that's oh my God, yeah, it's pressing. I'm but see, the thing is, it's not so much even with Wonder Woman in it. See, the reason I don't want to see Deadpool is because I don't want to think about superheroes anymore. <laughs> I'm not interested in the whole trope, right? I don't care what sort of take on it. I don't care whether they're saying superheroes are stupid. I just don't want anything more to do with superheroes. You know, I do specifically bring this up just because it annoys you. But I'm going to go and see Civil War. This week, and I've heard it's the best Marvel Avengers style film so far. And anyway, Rogue One, a Star Wars story, looks excellent. It's a trailer, <laughs> and there's bits when we see Atats from ground level. You're on the ground, and they're choof, choof, choof. what will you become? That's <laughs> oh, so good. <laughs> is that, is that, it's so good. Right, but I'm not going to watch it, so... (laughs) Well, we just bought... um... I might see the film, don't get me wrong, but I'm not going to watch the trailer. 
such a loser. <laughs> Star Wars uh, Force Awakens, yeah, that's now on DVD. So I've now watched that about 57 times. Because okay. you... <laughs> <laughs> Just got it on in looping back. Don't have time to watch that one X-Files episode, but yeah, you got time to watch a film you've already seen over and over and over and over again. Yeah. There's loads, there's loads of extra stuff in it that I didn't catch first time around, none of which I can remember right now. Mm. It's, um... Good. Okay. Right. <laughs> okay. And... Yeah.